Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast for Muncie First Brethren Church with Pastor Jim Garrett. This week we continue our series in the Gospel of John. When we read about Jesus cleansing the temple, we find Jesus confronting the disconnect between God's people and God's principles. Here's Pastor Garrett. You know, so much of what we see unfold in uh, these, this journey through the Gospel of John is just, uh, it's, it's challenging to see it again on one hand because they're familiar stories and yet they, they bring us to a place where we have to ask some new questions. And that's the way it is today when we look at Jesus at Passover going into the temple and cleansing the temple. Now, John has this event uh, and describes this event at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. When you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they have an event where Jesus goes in the last week of his life when he makes his triumphal entry and then goes to the temple, he cleanses the temple there. And so there's this raging debate about whether John is, is only describing the same event that they did or did it happen twice. Um, but based on the way John tells and narrates his, his uh, journey with Jesus, it's, it leads us to think that there were two events, and this one that John described was the one that he was uh, present there and, and described for the purposes that, that uh, he's laying out for us in this this beginning of, of the ministry of Jesus as he starts and gathers disciples and is, and is going through that process. Really, in many ways, it's immaterial where you fall on that debate or that question, but, but what is insightful about John's account is that it is longer. It does tell us some things about the way Jesus is seeing the connection that God has provided through the temple and then ultimately through himself. So that we have to ask ourselves questions if Jesus were to cleanse a temple today or were to show up and, and it was <clears throat> an event of cleansing the temple, where would he go? What would he be looking at and what would he take care of? Now, to be certain, I think the places where we worship, we want everything around us to be consistent with what is going on within us as a, as a response to the God who calls us to worship him and to know him. But that's not the evidence for what is actually happening. In fact, when we get into the New Testament further, we, we go to places like 1 Corinthians 3 and 6, where it uses the same word for temple and says that we are the temple of the living God. That the Holy Spirit dwells in us now because of who Jesus is. So now as we read this account where Jesus is going into the temple and saying, why have you taken and made this place into something that God never intended it to be. And, and even in the other accounts of, uh, of Jesus going into the temple at the end of his ministry in, in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, you have this, this saying where Jesus says that, that you have, have taken and, and turned, turned what God meant to be a place of prayer into a den of robbers or thieves, and he says... If you knew and understood what God wanted, you would understand the saying from Hosea that that's what God intended. He doesn't desire sacrifice. He desires mercy. 
And how does God show that he desires mercy? He gives it. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that. And very important discussions because for many, the temple represented the place where you encountered God. And, and I think those structures and the function of the temple was very important to that question. But God throughout was showing, and especially when you, when you look at places like Hosea, a prophet that God called to talk about the fact that, hey, you are, you are moving away from me. You have deserted me, and, and this is what I wanted. And if you understood my heart, you would understand that you can go through all the function and still miss me. You can go to the place that you think where I will be found and still miss me because I'm not after the things you do. I'm after you. So in Isaiah, you see that explicitly laid out before them where he, where he says to them, I, I didn't want your sacrifices. I don't want your burnt offerings. I want you. I want your heart, especially in the later chapters, Isaiah 56, 7, and 8, where he talks to them about about that, that understanding that that's what he's put on display. So here we have this statement that just taken, taken at face value, Jesus says some things here that they had no context to understand. John provides context because as he writes this after the events, of course, and after he puts it together, he says, Jesus wasn't talking here about this. He was talking about, in this case, his body. And he's attaching meaning where they would have not known how to do that. But I think for us, it's very important for us as we derive that meaning and as we see it with the benefit of John's hindsight, that we provide our hindsight and look at the rest of Scripture and say, what would a cleansing of the temple look like today? Because that question is answered when we best understand that he would come and look at the heart of each one of us. We are to be that temple. So what do we reflect in, the, in, the, in the, um, this, I'll, I'll use the word system, but in this, it's really in this structure that God has provided through relationship. And how do we measure that when, when that is applied to us? So let's look at the account here in John chapter 2. It starts in verse 12. And we, this is right after the wedding of Cana. It's coming up on this first Passover that John describes in the gospel. So Passover means it's one of those feasts that all men, Jewish men, are supposed to go to Jerusalem. That, that was what the law required. Passover was uh, the, the feast that was there as a reminder, a rehearsal of not only what God did when they were leaving Egypt, but on what God was providing. So remember, they, they were to take the blood of a lamb, uh, a one-year-old lamb, and, and they put the blood of that lamb on the doorpost, and then they were supposed to go into the house, and it said, when you do, that, that satisfied God's requirements, that you were covered by the blood of that lamb, and therefore, the death angel, when he came and visited Egypt, would not impact you. He would see the blood and pass over you. And so that became the, the historical structure of the feast that they did every year then. But I call it a rehearsal, and the Bible presents it as a rehearsal because it was also pointing forward. 
that their trust was not rooted in just this Passover event when they left Egypt, but was to be the, 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 the nature and the, the fullness of their trust of God when he provided the Passover lamb. And again, we have the scriptural hindsight to say Jesus is that Passover lamb, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. And so our, our structure of faith is based in this fullness. And so as they were dealing with these, these shadow pictures, Jesus was coming as the substance of that shadow, and they were, they were being challenged to come and, and, and to trust him. And we're going to see that unfold all the way through. And so as they do this, as they approach Jerusalem, with the, it says they went to Capernaum with his mother or his brothers and his disciples. They stayed there for a few days, and we know also this kind of becomes his home base. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, this would have been the outer courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Now, it's probably to be understood, and we don't know exactly, but we know that this was going on for a while. We have others that describe this very event. So this wasn't Jesus going up this time to Passover, and this was true. It was, it was something that was already a part of that structure. It was convenience, but it was also for those that offered that convenience a means of, a, of, of you know, charging exchange rates and taking a percentage and, and, you know, when you bought things, you were paying for that convenience. So people who were coming to Jerusalem for Passover were supposed to bring sacrifices and the things that, that they could give. They were supposed to make a temple donation. The temple at this point was still under construction. It's not a finished thing until 64 AD. This, so 30 years later, now it's Main part is done, but it's still under construction. We know, again, from other writers, Josephus tells us that it was in 64 AD that it was finished. The temple was still taking in some of those things, and they were required to bring a tax. Some of them were coming from lands where the, the Roman uh, um, money was not something that they had or that they bartered with. And so when they came to Jerusalem, which then was that Roman coin, they had to make that exchange. Just be like us going to another country and trying to buy things there, and they don't have the American dollar. You would go to an ex a bank that would exchange your American dollars for that, that currency. Well, that's what they had to do when they came to the temple. And so they were sitting right there where you had to go, and, and people were coming in. It became a big retail place. It became the first outlet mall, kind of. You could buy your sheep, your goats, your, you know, the doves, and exchange money all in one place. Not quite Walmart, but close. So when Jesus saw this, it says that he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To, uh, let's see, yes. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. The, the structure that was there had with it a function that was attached. Much of what had happened was just, like I said, for convenience. It wasn't that they were inherently trying to do something evil here. 
It wasn't because they charged too much. We don't know any of those things. And in fact, when you read anything else that describes this, that's never brought out. It's just that where they chose to do this was a complete misappropriation of what God had, had, had designed for those spaces. So that when people came there, they weren't, there wouldn't be these requirements of, of, of meeting these standards. And in fact, God, when you go and look at the, what he had established, he, he just left it to the individual. So when Jesus approached all of this, he says, you're turning my father's house into a market. Now, this is the first record we have of Jesus making this public reference to his father. We know later that this is going to be a real sticking point for, for the religious leaders because they'll know what that claim means, and we'll talk about that when we get there. But it, but it starts this narrative where Jesus is saying and pointing to himself as everything else has to say this is what God has given, what God has planned. Here he says it this way to them. He says, yeah, I got that. My, mine up here is saying it's not cooperating with me, so I'll have to make sure. It says, his disciples remember that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. That's from the Psalms. And he talks about it there, that, that context is just that he understands what the house of the Lord is about, what it's for, the shelter that it provides, the relationship that it provides, and that that's what he wants, even in the, as the psalmist describes that. But then the Jews responded to him, well, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? They knew that it was pushing the limits, by the way. They knew that there was, and, and so for Jesus to come in and say it's wrong, I, I think they already kind of knew that, that that might be, that they were, they were pushing the edges of what would be allowed. So on what basis do you, do you make that final statement? This is always the question that Jesus will get. Now in, in the Gospels, when you remember, especially in Matthew, when they say, show us a sign, prove your authority to us, what does Jesus tell them? This wicked, this wicked generation will only get one sign. Now, they get many more, but the sign, the, the, the convincing, the proving sign is that Jesus will die, be three days within the earth, the belly of the earth, as Jonah was in the belly of the well, and then rise again. There will only be the one sign. Yet, all around him, Jesus is doing and showing that that's why that sign matters. The others establish the claims of God the Father for relationship. It's the sign of his death, burial, and resurrection that prove that God's claims are valid. Don't ever forget that, because there's going to be many who see these signs, and they're going to be described here, and it says they'll believe in his name. And later on in, the, in the, the narrative, we'll see where others are believing, but they aren't convinced. They believe that, that the signs are something, but, but they won't come to Jesus as the life giver. And in, when asked to do so, they, they will actually rise up and be defiant. So if the signs don't lead you 
to God the Father and the relationship that is offered through the person, you've missed the signs. You've misinterpreted those signs. It's like when I see a sign that says speed limit 35, it means 40. I know what that means. Everybody knows that. Unless you're on the interstate when it says speed limit 70, I know that means 78. Don't even try to pull that on me. They were misinterpreting the signs. Jesus was giving a sign and it, and it was pointing to, it was actually pointing to the Father who had constructed all of this and given the design. And as they, as they were looking at it and, and they believed in what, you know, that he could do these things, they didn't believe in the one who had accomplished everything. And that's why the religious leaders miss it. We see that, we see that in all of its glory in the next chapter with Nicodemus. We, we know the things you're doing, the things you're saying. No one can do that unless they're from God. And Nicodemus is challenged Immediately, Jesus saying, hey, you have to be born again. There's a reason he goes there. And again, we'll talk about that when, when we get there in the next chapter. So Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. Now, here's, here's where we put these things together. He said this in Matthew where, you know, you're going to destroy this. I'm going to raise up again. That's the only sign you're going to get. He's alluding to it here, but they don't have the context to know this yet. But he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. That's what he says. And, and so they're thinking, this temple, it's in, it's in the middle of construction. It's been 46 years. It's still going on. But, but the temple itself, they, you know, that 46 years number seems to be the indication of what it took just to get that part done. And he's going to raise it up in three days. So in the midst of that question... John adds this in verse 21, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. And they didn't know this. And again, why would you be so mystical or so cryptic, I guess is the better word, not mystical, cryptic, with, with the language and the conversation if this is the point you want to make? But John understood that in the midst of Jesus making this point, because we're going to see a, a bit of a description coming up about those who believed him. He's going to say he understood where they were coming from, and we'll see it in John chapter 6 as well. When the people are looking for them after he feeds the 5,000, he says, you're looking for me because your bellies are full. You, you knew the miracle, but you didn't see what the miracle was providing. You want this bread that will satisfy maybe from one day to the next, but God's offering you the bread of life on whom he has set his seal of approval. And again, I get ahead of myself, but they all fit together. And part of the challenge when we go through here is that we have to be able to fit these pieces together. So if Jesus is saying that this temple structure is not by, that's not the final thing of God's design. That's not what he's giving to say, you have to come here to find me. No, he's saying the temple, and here's the first reflection of that, uh, of that substance we talked about, where you have, have the shadow and now you have the substance. The temple was a shadow. Hebrews goes, the book of Hebrews goes through a lot of this. Every element was a shadow of the fullness 
the substance that is Jesus. Jesus is making an allusion to it here. John fills in the blank to tell us, to tell his readers, years, you know, 30 years later, that, hey, saying this, this is Jesus talking about his body. That first, the fulfillment of God and, and the presence in his place and relationship is fulfilled in Jesus, so that when we start seeing the language of you are God's temple, that in Christ, this is the mystery that God has had, that's Christ in you, the hope of glory, you, you, you put those things together and you're going, oh, that's what God wanted. This is why we don't go to the law for salvation. The law points us to the Savior. It's the instructions. It's those things that says God's righteous standard is absolute. It's right and it's good, but it's only met in the person of his son. So that when we start looking then at these structures and the functions within those structures, that wasn't the final picture. God always intended it to be a place that you would understand that he desired mercy, not sacrifice. And how do you know he desired mercy? Because he was the biggest giver of mercy ever. We also call it grace. You, you think of grace as God's unmerited favor. Mercy is not getting God's deserved punishment. The judgment of sin is put upon Jesus so that we can receive the fullness of his righteousness if you believe him. So if you don't believe him, then the punishment for sin remains on you or me. We sang that song, he paid the ransom on the cross. That's why lead me to the cross. Let me see what that means. Let me understand what that means so that I don't deserve your grace. And yet you give it to me and I don't deserve your mercy and yet you allow me to find it. So the temple he spoke of was his body. And so further it says, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed what? the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. They put them together. They understood. They understood how, how these things happened. And, and again, in the same way we're doing here, we're taking the scriptures and the things that Jesus said, and we're going, this is how this makes sense. This is what God wanted. And Jesus is going to say this and emphasize it over and over again. He'll have a religious leader in front of him in chapter 3. He has the woman that's basically living, uh, you know, just a, a, a life based on her own standard of morality, which is called immorality. And he says, but this is what God wants. He wants your heart. He doesn't even ask her to, 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 to clean everything up first. He just says, if you would come to me and ask for the water I give you, You'll never thirst again. Always on display, this, this, this perspective that God has given. Very serious. The, the, the temple was no small thing. The structures and the functions were not minor. They were, they were great evidence of, of God's heart and his mercy and his love and his grace. And yet, 
we want to call it the law, which only has a negative connotation from our, from our perspective. That's why I prefer the word instructions. That word means that as well. It was just, you want to be mine? This is what obedience looks like. And all of it's based on trust. By the way, when you do this, bring a sacrifice. Well, how do I know that does anything? Because I say so, God says. How do I know that when I bring on the Day of Atonement or this Passover feast and I bring these required sacrifices, what, how do I know that means anything? Because God says it means everything. Because you're trusting me. So that when you then see the Passover lamb, the Passover lamb, you're going, it means everything. Because God has established the meaning and the purpose and all that it would accomplish while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, it says many people saw the signs he was performing and they believed in his name, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them or to their faith for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind for he knew what was in each person. He didn't need to know them individually. He just knew that within them was this capacity to want to rush him to the place of king without accepting him as the person of the Savior. And it was a very important transition that needed to take place in their minds that, yes, they could see and believe in him, but to understand how God had, had provided that. And that's why we, John chapter 6 becomes that one, uh, that fail-safe, that discussion of belief. You know, my body's real bread, my, my blood is real drink, and unless you have life in me, you have no life at all. These very, very um, um, absolute words, this language of absoluteness that says, unless you do this, there it's not available any other place. When asked what it means to believe, Jesus lays it out for them. Belief is not just something that I, I say, I believe he did it. I believe he's real. And I've had these conversations with folks that I, I believe he died on the cross but I'm just not sure I need to believe that, you know, he's my savior. Well, you're missing everything else. All the other beliefs fall short. So if Jesus were to come in here and, and to cleanse the temple, the last place he would look is our, is our exterior walls. The first place he would look is within us. And it's not so much, I, I, it's, it's just the question of, of do you understand what, what God is offering in, in himself through his son? Do you understand the nature of that relationship? And that when he calls you to obedience, I, I, I was listening to someone this last week who understood the weight of that decision, but had not come to the place that he acknowledged even that God existed. And here's, and I know that sounds confusing. It is even to hear him describe it. But his description is this. He says, it's very audacious to say that I believe in God because I know what's in me. And he said, I believe that if you understood, if there really is a God, he said, I believe that it would have to have some kind of impact, and he said, I know I'm not there. He was missing the person of Jesus in this whole discussion. He, he, that's where, that's where the, the weight of who God is, 
He understood that, but he could not see how God lifted the weight by providing through Jesus Christ. And he did not have that part of the picture. But he said, he said, I don't know what I believe about God, but I want my actions, I want my life to be a reflection as if I did. And I thought that was very interesting. He wasn't claiming to know, but he understood that if there was a God, then it would matter. It would make a difference. And so he said, I want my life to look like I believe in this God, but I'm not sure that I can lay claim to that yet. So on one hand, very, you know, very refreshing, and on the other hand, very sad. Because God has provided the means to know him and know him in his fullness. And it's not because we overcome the shortcomings, but because he takes away every shortcoming. He doesn't just overcome them. He takes it away. So I don't have to understand everything that God is in his nature, but I see who he is in Christ so that when I believe in him, then I can say, that's why obedience is an expression of worship. That's why I get to go there as a result of the relationship, as an expression of it. Jesus knew what was in each person. Without, without the capacity or without the, the um, uh, awareness and the move towards God's truth revealed in Christ, we're going to be lost. It's just that, it's that simple on one hand and that difficult as this person was describing on the other. So if Jesus walked in here and cleansed the temple, don't look at your neighbor. <laughs> That's to be true of each one of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 talks again about the language of temple. And Paul, 1 Corinthians, is just, it's, it's in a lot of places. Believe it or not, the word for temple in Hebrews is not the word used here. It's sanctuary. It's a different word. Um, but Paul uses this, this word that was a direct pointer to the temple structure itself, but now saying God has made his people the temple of God, all in Christ Jesus. And I don't understand how he does it, but he says, you, that's where I want my presence to be. I want it to be in the people who trust me and understand that what's, what's offered in Christ is, is more than a religion, more than an ideology. It's more than seeing the miracles. It's believing in the fullness of, of God's heart for you, the fullness of his grace and mercy revealed completely in the person of his son through his death, burial, and resurrection. So Jesus was pointing to that. So it's good for us. I don't want to force the spiritualizing, the, the application part out of that text, but the rest of Scripture provides the backdrop for us to do that, to say if Jesus is saying he's the temple, what does that mean when Paul then says that he's within us and we are now the temple? It's the same thing in Matthew when he says, you are the light of the world, but yet he's the light of the world. How, how does that happen? Well, through Christ, that becomes true of us. 
that we become the light of the world, the salt of the earth. It's in him. It had to be difficult to express faith in that first century without the familiar structures and the things that were around them. It's kind of hard for us, too, because we live in a place where it's safe to have buildings, where we worship, and the things, it's almost an attachment, and it almost feels natural. But we, kind of, we have to step out of that and realize that, that there are many places they have no structures, they have nothing, and yet they understand the fullness of relationship without them. For us, we should be like, wow, what a great privilege, advantage. We should never take for granted the fact that we can freely gather like this and worship. But we do. And it should be natural then like breathing to us to say, well, Father, what, what does this look like then? Because he doesn't want you to be the temple today alone. He wants you to be the temple every day because you are. This is not to be the place where we acknowledge who he is and, and, and that it, it, it suffers here or, or just is left here. Far from it. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Wherever you are, that's where he is within you. You then are to be uh, uh, a place where God shows up and works in you and through you. And so I use those two prepositional phrases together in conjunction because that's how he constructed us in Christ. He's pointing there. Jesus is pointing there. And, and, and again, obviously, if this were something made up, this would be a time to elaborate and make it big. And Jesus doesn't do that. That happens in other places. He'll say something very cryptic, and then you'll have this discussion, and he just unpacks it. This isn't one of them. John gives us one little phrase, one little sentence to unpack what Jesus was saying, but that doesn't provide the benefit to those listening because it wasn't yet there where they grab hold of. They were seeing some of the miracles of things he was doing. We know. Until he reveals that truth based on the scriptures, and that's why the, the statement there about the disciples believing and, and believing in what Jesus said in the scriptures was an important transition. So how, how do we become the temple of God? Through faith in Christ. Where are we the temple of God? Where we're breathing? What does it look like? For him to cleanse the temple, giving him access every single day to come in and say, don't make this house of relationship, this house of prayer into something else. God's design is that you come to him and allow his standard to be applied through the grace and mercy that is given through Jesus Christ. So we can confess our sins, we can acknowledge our sins based on this relationship that we have with the Father. It, to close today, it was interesting for me to go to Matthew 12 and see where Jesus questions of the Sabbath and all the things that were going on. And they were, it was when the disciples, he and the disciples were hungry and they were on the Sabbath, they were walking, 
through a field and they were rubbing the grains of head and, and, and kind of nibbling on, on the grain. Well, those that obviously were watching Jesus saying, how dare you do this kind of work on the Sabbath? You're not supposed to do that. And Jesus just took them back to the Old Testament and said, there's all kinds of pictures in there where you're misunderstanding everything about the, the temple, the Sabbath. And, and he ended that, this is in Matthew 12, verses 6 and 7. He says, he says, there's something greater here than the temple. You better wake up. You're letting your view of the temple shape everything that you view around it rather than letting God's view of the temple be a, a translation of, of his view of you and what relationship looks like. So he says, you've condemned the innocent for, for nothing because that's not what God intended. That's not what God wanted. He wanted, and that's where we tie in. He desired mercy, not sacrifice becomes that living reality for us. Trust the Father. Grab hold of this person of Jesus and say, I want to know all the fullness that you have promised in him. It starts with that saving faith, certainly, of just saying, I believe he died for me, that life is given in him, and, and that life is for me. And from there, we then just learn to walk and grow and to be connected, but it's a daily thing. Exercise daily. Walk with the Lord. And Father, that truly has to be our prayer each day. We just pray that you would continue to move us closer. And Father, like those that were watching Jesus and, 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 and attracted because of the things he did, you have called us to be a, a, attracted to the fact that he supplies all that you have promised. He is the substance that which we hang on to, and that the promise is, is your life, your love, your grace, your mercy, and, and this eternal life that is ours. Father, I pray that we would be shaped by that truth, that we would learn to move within it, that it would be like breathing to us, but then that we would be able to have those conversations with others, to point to Jesus, giving you the praise and the glory. You are, you are truly, well, awesome comes to mind, falls way short, but we give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.